Thank you, Chris, and welcome everyone again to Bethany as we worship together in many places around our city and region and world. It is a joy and privilege to be with you. My name is Richard Dahlstrom. I'm the senior pastor here at Bethany Community Church. We're continuing the second in a Lenten series entitled Formed in the Wilderness. Today, we're looking at God's provision of bread for people as they are wandering through the wilderness in what will eventually be a 40-year journey, not intended to be so at the outset, more like maybe two years at the outset, but ended up being 40, as we'll get into that later on. But please pray with me as we begin, and this is very important this morning, for our own moment in time uh, where transformation awaits us, and yet sometimes we resist transformation, as we'll see. So let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you that as we gather in various places, about a year or so out from this pandemic that has isolated us, that you continue to meet us, and we are grateful for that. And we pray, Father, that you would meet us today and that you would shape us in order that we might be, through the experience of this moment, shaped by you to be people of hope in our world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I was privileged to go to seminary in 1982, which is really only about three years after uh, uh, China had opened up to the West in any way. It had closed its doors to the West entirely in around the year 1950, 1951. Chairman Mao had uh, taken power. It was the People's Revolution, and uh, China shut down, and all missionaries were uh, exiled, and many pastors were, you know, tossed in prison and that kind of thing. And in the West, there was at the time of the closing of China a great uh, kind of sense of questioning, what is going to happen now? without the missionaries, without the seminaries, without the Bible schools, without the campus ministries, without the parachurch ministries, without the counseling ministries, without the radio ministries. What will happen to the church in China without all that we in the West deem essential to our life together as Christ followers? Well, uh, in 1979, things open up. I'm in seminary in 1982, and one of my fellow students is from China and grew up in China and was studying for ministry. And it was such a privilege to get to know him a little bit. He shared his testimony in one of our classes of God's miraculous provision for he and his family who were Christ followers in a deeply persecuted time for Christians in China. They hid in a cave. God provided food for them miraculously. God provided medical care for them miraculously. People would come into this cave for Bible study with a fragment of Scripture that had been smuggled and memorized, and they would, they, someone would share the Scripture, they would pray, they would worship, they would, they would cling to Christ in a way that we often don't cling to Christ in the West. And he shared his testimony, and then one day later on, I met him, he was quite discouraged and was withdrawing from the students to some extent. And I, and I said to him, what bothers you about being here? You're getting this great seminary education, and this is what he said. I'll never forget it. He said, Richard, in the West, I've come to discover that you think knowing is acquired by information. I'm here to tell you, he said this, knowing isn't acquired by information. Knowing is acquired by experience. And that's what I think we need to talk about this morning because a phrase that recurs in our text in Exodus chapter 16 is this, then you will know that I am the Lord. Then after what? 
after experience. In other words, I won't know God as comforter until I'm uncomfortable. I won't. I can know the theory of God as comforter, but not the reality until I've been uncomfortable and God has met me in that uncomfortable state and comforted me. I won't know God as merciful until I fail. I won't know God as guide until I don't know which way to go. I won't know God as companion until I'm lonely. I won't know God as strength until I'm weak. I won't know God as provider until I'm hungry. So discomfort and losing your sense of direction and hunger and weakness and failure, uh, these things are all necessary in our lives. And they can actually be found, all of them, in one place, the wilderness. We have this title for this series, Formed in the Wilderness. And the wilderness, therefore, for Israel, becomes a school in which we uh, get to know God. Because that key verse is verse 12. Then you will know that I am the Lord. When you have a need and God meets it, we're told that it's by virtue of God meeting that need, and we know that it's God, and we know that we had the need, and God met us there, then we begin to know, with a capital K by experience, God's character. And knowing by experience builds our faith and therefore becomes absolutely foundational to our transformation. In other words, I'm not transformed by downloading more and more and more and more Bible unless that knowledge is coupled with experience. It's not real growth. You can study math and you know math. You can study computers and you know computers. You can study botany and you know botany. You can study biology and you know biology. You can study God and you know God. No. Of those five things I just articulated, only two are true. You can study math and know math. You can study computers and know computers. But botany, biology, God, you cannot study and know because botany, biology, and God are not dealing with objects. Each of them is a subject. Botany is about life. Biology is about life. God is, is, a, is an infinite being, knowable with a personality. And personalities are not known through textbooks. Personalities are known by experiences, which require interaction. So God's lab, in which God's character comes to be known, is the wilderness. Now, though we have a wilderness ministry here at Bethany, and though I encourage you to utilize the wilderness ministry to the extent that you're able, hiking, backpacking, being out in God's creation, away from the creature comforts that are found in civilization, I would also want to make clear to you that wilderness here is representative of anywhere in our lives where we're looking around and we're like this, this is unfamiliar territory. I've never been here before. This is new to me because in unfamiliar territory, my senses are attuned in an entirely different way. I, don't, I really know that I don't know what's around the corner. And when I don't know what's around the corner, then I'm in this state of heightened awareness and ultimately spiritually in a state of heightened dependency. And so if wilderness is unfamiliar territory, 2020, now bleeding into 2021, can certainly be defined as wilderness. We've never been here before, not in 103 years. Never been in a, in a, in a global pandemic, in, not in our lifetime. Never, never been in a state where uh, simmering racial tensions have exploded again and again and again and again. 
Not in our lifetime. Never been in this state of social isolation that leads to anxiety and depression and, and, and this knowing that this is wrong. We're not made for isolation. We're made for community, and yet we're isolated. We've never been there before. This is wilderness. So this text offers us two very important truths about, number one, our default mode as humans when we meet the wilderness, and number two, God's character, how God responds to our default mode. Our default mode in the wilderness, God's character in response to our default mode. And here's kind of the bad news to begin with. Our default mode in the wilderness that is God's lab is grumbling. Look at uh, Exodus 16 again, verses 1 to 4. Just uh, listen. They set out from Elam. The congregation came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day. The congregation, the whole congregation, it says, grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness and they said, oh, I wish we died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt because there at least we had meat and bread. You, you, you have brought us out here to kill us with hunger. What are you doing? There's the grumbling. And so the grumbling here presents as a complaint about Moses' leadership. And those complaints, by the way, in this story will become a regular occurrence uh, for the people throughout Moses' ministry. And often, when the people would complain about Moses' leadership, it's, it, you read the text and it says, Moses would fall on his face and pray. I used to jokingly say, you'll know Moses when we all get together in eternity because his nose will be bruised for having fallen on his face so often to pray because so often people were complaining about his leadership. But here's the thing that I want you to see in this moment that's significant. Left to our own devices, it is in our human heart, particularly in the collective and particularly during times of trial, to grumble and complain. And since this past year has been a triple pandemic of COVID, race, and political divisions, the grumbling has been at an all-time high, at least in my lifetime, an all-time high. And I would just say to you as a pastor, this has not always been easy. People are easily offended in this moment. Uh, and I'm about to share with you how offended people can be, and I don't want you to respond by sending me notes of encouragement. I get plenty of encouragement. So know that. But know that in this season, by virtue of preaching and writing, I've received emails and been posted about online and been called a moron, an instrument of Satan, a fascist, fascist Nazi, stupid, hard-hearted, and a blind liberal. And, and so what happens is in this time in which we find ourselves, relational capital is diminished, and it becomes very easy for us, easier in this time than ever to grumble, but there's more to it than that. I want you to see, and it's very important that we see this, grumbling is the default mode for humans. In other words, that's where we'll go unless... We allow God to intervene and change our hearts. We will complain. Now, the grumbling is initially directed toward Moses. And I want to say, I want to make it clear here, there are good leaders and bad leaders, and all leaders make bad decisions at times. So this is not a call to blind loyalty. This is not a call to denial of shortcomings. 
But the text makes it clear that the headwaters of this toxic grumbling has to do not with Moses, the particular human leader of the day. The headwaters of this grumbling has to do actually with Israel's view of God. In verse 8, Moses says, this is going to happen. God is going to give you meat to eat, and uh, God hears your grumblings. And then this is what Moses says. Hey, who are we? Your grumblings are not against us. They are against God. Verse 8, chapter 16. So I want to make some key observations about grumbling. Basically, four key observations about grumbling. Observation number one. Grumbling is different than lament. It's very important that we see this. In uh, Psalm 73, there's lament. Job laments. Jeremiah laments. And by the way, the book of Lamentations, all about lament. And, and Mary at the tomb of Lazarus laments. Even Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus, before raising Lazarus from the dead, laments. And if you, if you don't make a distinction between grumbling and lamenting, then you end up demonizing, lamenting, and, and then you say, hey, it's unspiritual to ever be sad. This text is not saying that. It's very important that we make this distinction because if faith says, never be sad, then faith is saying, uh, never be sad about injustice. Ne ne never be broken hearted about broken marriages. Never, never mourn the, the state of political polarization in our world. No. <laughs> Psalm 62 says this, pour your heart out to the Lord. So lament is appropriate because lament sees a dissonance between what is and the shalom for which we're created. And we long for it to be this way, but it's this way we lament. That's good. That's appropriate. That's not grumbling. So let me make a distinction then between lament and grumbling, because if we don't make the distinction and we think that lament is grumbling and we think that grumbling is sin, then we think lament is sin. And then we end up stuffing this sense of dissonance between what is and what ought to be. And then you hear people saying things like this. Oh yeah, you know, I, praise the Lord. And, and they're like, I'm up, but it's tinny and hollow because it's not rooted in reality and it's denying lament. No. Lament's appropriate, but lament isn't grumbling. Here's what characterizes grumbling. It's my second observation regarding grumbling. Grumbling forgets God's faithfulness. Very important that we see this. I mean, the Red Sea has just parted. And then water has just been provided for them. And already they're being guided by a cloud in the day and a fire at night. And they're learning this rhythm of travel and rest and celebration and trial of need and provision for the need. But then every time need comes, all that they've experienced seems irrelevant. And they, every time a need comes, they go, oh yeah, see, it's over. God brought us this far and now he's going to kill us. This is why years later, the next generation, just before entering the promised land, receive a word from God, Deuteronomy chapter six. God says this, listen, when you go into the land, I'm going to institute many, many celebrations. It's, it's going to include the Passover. It's going to include the Feast of Booths. Uh, later on, in, in, as, as this evolves and, and Christ comes and, and, the, and the church begins, it's going to include uh, uh, 
you know, Advent and the recollection of Jesus' incarnation. It's going to include Lent. It's going to include Easter. It's going to include resurrection. It's going to include communion. It's going to include baptism. What is God saying through all this? One thing, remember. Remember what I've done. Remember who I am. And I would add, remember in your own lives, God's faithfulness. And I would add this, and this is so important. Remember that all through the scripture, there's a rhythm. Night and day, winter and summer, rest and work, lament and rejoicing, sickness and healing, wealth and, and times of poverty, times of war, times of peace. Ecclesiastes 3, there's a time for everything. And so when you're in the time of need, you're in the time of need so that like the church in China, you can learn by experience the character of God Walk through it. Remember, God is with you there. So important that we see that. So grumbling is different than lament. Second, grumbling forgets God's faithfulness. Third, grumbling presumes God's bad motives and Moses' bad motives as well. Kind of the core question that either derails our faith or empowers us to continue in our faith, the kind of the core question is this, is God good? And I'd say how you answer that question depends on whether you can kind of rest in God's arms, trust God through darkness, through valleys, through fog, through need. If you don't get this answer right, you don't get anything right. Is God good? And the real answer would be this. Yes, God is good and it's a fallen world. <laughs> and in this fallen world, bad things will happen to good people, but this fallen world isn't the whole story because God steps in and, 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 and provides. And I go back to my friend uh, who had grown up in the underground church in China, and he had two kinds of stories to tell, stories of miraculous provision. I mean, animals bringing food to this cave where the church would gather. And then, and then leaving the food and then walking away. Uh, now, you can believe it or don't. I happen to believe it. I, I, I know the guy. <laughs> Amazing stories of provision. Amazing stories of healing. And stories of imprisonment. And stories of execution. And stories of loss. And you know, all of it is, uh, is under the banner of this. God is good. Now, this is so hard for us. We love the story of the animal bringing food, uh, the, the story of the pastor executed, not so much. Is God good? Yes. And the big picture is this. God is writing into our lives an eternal story. And if, if my only framework is time, I begin to doubt the goodness of God. And the shorter my framework of time becomes, the more I doubt the goodness of God. Does that make sense? Like if, if my framework is eternity, then even if I die, I'm still in God's story. If my framework is this life, then dying is hard, but seasons of hunger are not so hard. God will bring a season of plenty. But if my framework is this moment of hunger, God is no longer good. And so I need this eternal perspective. 
And Israel did not have that. But I will tell you, as an old guy, one of the glories of being in pastoral ministry for now uh, well over 30 years is hearing stories of transformation that have come in, the, in those times of valley and fog and difficulty. Bankruptcy, marriage failure, caught in an addiction, loss of a parent, loss of a child, things that you would never cancer, things you'd never wish on anyone. And God uses those very events to bring transformation and intimacy and hope. And then in the wake of those events, a season of healing often, often. Is God good? We have to learn to answer that question. And here's the last thing. Grumbling is different than lament. Grumbling forgets God's faithfulness. Grumbling presumes God's bad motives. And fourth, grumbling presumes the outcome. Oh yeah, you brought us out in the wilderness to kill us. The assumption is they're going to die in the wilderness. Let me make a couple of observations. Number one, it was never God's intention for them to die in the wilderness. God's preferred future for them was this new life in a new land. But the reality as we unfold the story in the coming weeks is this. They said no to that offer of a new life in a new land. And the pattern of rejecting God's preferred future runs strong throughout the Bible. Adam and Eve rejected God's preferred future. Cain rejected God's preferred future. Humanity at the Tower of Babel rejected God's preferred future. In this story, the people of God reject. Later, Israel rejects again in the days of the prophets. Later still, Jesus stands at the outskirts of Jerusalem and he weeps because he wants to gather all of the people into his arms the way a mother hen gathers chicks, wrapping them in protection and provision and intimacy. And instead, they were like this. No, kill him. Oh, His blood on our heads, ours, and our children. No problem. Just kill the man. Wow. Same people who said Hosanna a week earlier. Why? It is in the human heart to resist God's pathway to ongoing transformation. And why is that? Because God's pathway always, always, always requires this. A rhythm of darkness and light, sickness and health, want and provision, Lament and rejoice, loss and gain, intimacy and loneliness. And we don't like that. I, I, want, I want the healing and the wealth and the comfort and the upward mobility and, 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 and the light. I want, it, I want perpetual summer, man. No. When will it end? This darkness? <laughs> doesn't matter. Here's the thing. It'll end. We live in the mountains. And for those of you who don't live around here, you may not know this. We're in the midst of an epic snow year. The second story windows in our house are covered with snow right now. Some of you have been there, you know. You look out the second story windows and there's no view. It's just snow. And uh, I love snow but I'm, I'm done. <laughs> a melt could begin and I wouldn't be sad. I know already there's plenty of snow through June. But though, though I'm tired of it and though it's covered the windows, I know, I know, I know that the day will come, whether it's May or June or July or August, the day will come 
when the snow will be gone and I'll be picking dandelions to make dandelion tea because the, the whole mountainside will be bursting forth in, in, in dandelions. And, 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 there'll be, and there'll be nettles and there'll be uh, uh, just beautiful wildflowers and, and seasons of life and sunshine and warmth. And it'll be awesome. I, I know. How do I know? Remember? This is so key. 1 Corinthians 10 says that this story in Exodus 16 is written for us because we've started a journey with Christ in the same way that Israel started a journey in the wilderness. And 1 Corinthians 10 says, don't do what they did or you will follow their pattern. And what was their pattern? Grumbling became chronic and chronic grumbling kills your faith. So that when they were asked to follow God in ways that were uncomfortable or unpredictable or required risk, they said, uh, no thanks, we'd prefer to go back to Egypt. 1 Corinthians 10 says, with most of them, God was not well pleased. God's intent is that we learn from them. And the one step that you can take in order to enter the fullness of what God has for you by avoiding grumbling, the one step you can take is this, gratitude. You've got, you've got to practice gratitude. Pour your heart out to God. Yes. Lament, yes, but practice gratitude. Remembrance of God's character and provision yesterday becomes the basis for faith and trust tomorrow. This is how David could pray the way that he did. And he, he, you know, he was the guy who said, hey, even if the mountains slip into the sea, I'm not worried. God will, God in the end will take care of everything. Robin Wall Kimmerer, in her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, writes that in one particular tribe of Native Americans, all meetings open with what's called the Thanksgiving Address. And it's absolutely beautiful and stunning. I wish you could just sit down and, 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 and read the whole thing with me. But the end of each paragraph says this. On this, our minds are one. And so each paragraph is, is a declaration of gratitude, beginning with the sun and the moon and the earth and the wind and the sky and the fish and the plants and the bugs and the forests and the water and the humans and every created thing. And, 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 and we give thanks and we see how God has provided again and again and again, every, every breath we take, every sip of clean water, every eye contact, every moment of intimacy, every joy, every, every snowflake, every melt of a snowflake, the sunshine, the darkness, the rhythm. It's all from God. It's all good. It's beautiful. It's stunning. It's exceptional. Even in COVID time, it's beautiful. Give thanks. The Thanksgiving address, says one Indian chief, is a reminder we cannot hear too often that we human beings are not in charge of the world, but subject to the same forces as all the rest of life and that the creator is providing. What would it look like to be raised on gratitude? What would it look like to every day speak to the natural world, giving thanks to the giver of all the gifts of the natural world, to, 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 to raise this, this pledge that the giver of these gifts is good? What would that look like? On this, we all agree. Snowfall is good. 
Rain is good. Clean water is good. Fellowship is good. Peace is good. On this, we all agree. Gratitude journal. For me, that's the practice here. I have a journal that's just gratitude. It's just a little journal. And I try every day. I don't do it every day, but I try every day to write something in there for which I'm grateful. This is healing. This is life. I encourage you, friends, practice gratitude because gratitude is like, it's like the solvent that dissolves the rust that is the default mode of grumbling. Gratitude just dissolves it. And, you know, I have a second observation and one minute left, so I'm just going to give it to you here. Our default mode, uh, grumbling. God's default mode, merciful provision. God's like this, I'm going to provide for you. Don't worry. Oh, uh, you want, you're, oh, you're hungry? Oh, you had meat back there? I'll give you quail. Oh, uh, you're, you're afraid you're heading into the wilderness for a couple of years? Uh, don't worry. Every morning, there'll be food. Let me just say something about this. This food will be endless, but you'll need to gather it daily. Like I'm an infinite provider, but I'm inviting you to participate with me. The food won't show up in your bed. <laughs> you will participate. So it's endless, but it's daily. So we pray, don't we? Give us this day our Bread so that we never have to ask for you anything again? No, we pray, give us this day our what? Our daily bread. And you may have, you may have a million dollars in the bank. You still need God daily for restoration, for healing, for uh, wisdom in, in the midst of a failed relationship, for, for uh, overcoming victimization from abuse or violence, for wisdom regarding next steps in a vocational uh, choice, for joy when the world is swimming in a sea of darkness, for strength when you don't feel like you can go on. <clears throat> you need God's daily bread every day, so do I. Endless, but daily. And this is the other thing God says. It's not just strength, it's satisfaction. Not just strength, satisfaction. I, I love that. In other words, bread, bread isn't utilitarian. As we know, in COVID time, there's been an explosion in the making of homemade bread. I will just share personally, I'm a, I'm a kind of a paleo guy. I don't eat a lot of bread. And yet when my daughters show up, one of whom owns a bakery and the other uh, who, who, who bakes bread like a genius, when they show up at my house with a fresh loaf of sourdough bread, my heart sings. Like there is such joy in bread, buttered, hot, or with cheese melted on top, or best of all, with cheese melted on top and bacon added on top of that. It's satisfaction. So God isn't utilitarian in God's provision for your life. God brings strength through bread, but satisfaction. And that bread, that manna represents who? Your source of strength and satisfaction, Jesus, John 6, who said this. Hey, uh, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they got hungry again and again and again. Eat of me, 
and you will never hunger again. I'm your satisfaction. In COVID, in the midst of, of racial tensions, when, when you're being called names online, I am enough. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, make us grateful. There's plenty to complain about. But if, you, if you'll just turn our hearts, Father, by your grace may we see every breath, every hug, every moment of laughter, the abundant provision materially, the measure of peace we know, and so much more, gifts from you. Make us grateful, Father, for you are the provider, even when we grumble. And we thank you for your mercy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.